going to do it a little bit differently this morning. I'm going to spend a little bit of time over here, speaking to this narrow corridor. And I'm probably going to come over here a little bit and speak to the few people over here. No, I'm only joking. In case you aren't aware, we're recording our sermons now and they're on YouTube. Um, I'm pretty nervous with this. I've got a lot going on this week. I've got two two-hour training sessions to deliver in my work. I've got a job interview by video tomorrow, and I've got this as well, so um, we're going well. <laughs> so we're in the process of exploring uh, Paul's letters in 1 Timothy. This letter is really a, a letter of encouragement and uh, instruction to young Timothy, who's been appointed to the church at Ephesus. We only have this one letter to Timothy. We don't have the letters back and forth. Now, why they'd be great, um, we don't. And we just have to draw on what we know from this letter, from Acts and from Ephesians and some other historical sources. Now, I think this letter really is a letter of instruction for the leadership of the church. It's not, it's probably not a book of the Bible you'd give to a new convert and say, here, go away and make some sense of this. Um, I'm going to do things a little bit differently this morning, as I said. I'm going to jump right into the passage, mainly because I've written and thrown away about six introductions. I didn't think any of them were any good. And I know seven's a biblical number, but uh, at 8.30 last night, I didn't have much hope of uh, getting a seventh one done. So we'll uh, come back to the verses and pull apart and see if we can get some meaning uh, for 2019. All of you who... All who are under the yoke of slavery shouldn't consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. These are the things you are to teach and insist on if anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus and, our godly and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels and words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk and evil suspicions and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and think godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we should be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into the temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, I guess to understand the first two verses, we must, I guess, understand the concept of slavery during this time period. I don't know about you, but when I think of slaves, I think of people that have been held against their will, that are really poorly treated. They have no rights, no rights and they're forced to do work against their will. That mental image of the men on the chain gang, shackled to one another by a chain, um, or working in a quarry, that's what comes to my mind when I think of slavery throughout the Bible. Now, while that might be accurate at some point in time, it's not what we're talking about here in the, the situation that Paul's describing in his letter. 
during the time of the Roman Empire, slaves or bond servants were pretty commonplace. It, it was a cultural normality. It's estimated that a third of the Roman Empire may have actually been made up of, uh, of slaves. And there are a number of ways you could acquire a slave. Obviously not being a slave yourself and being wealthy was probably a good start. But if you had large debt, there's not nearly the same amount there was not nearly the same amount of laws around financial um, lending back then. There was no bankruptcy. So if you couldn't pay your debts, you could sell yourself into slavery or sell your children into slavery. Uh, you could be captured as a prisoner of war and you'd be given the choice. You could die or you could be bonded into slavery. You could also be born into slavery. If your parents were both slaves, there wasn't a great deal of hope for yourself. And from a very young age, you were probably going to be a slave. And people were also kidnapped and forced into slavery and sold and traded. So because many of these slaves were captured, they weren't just uneducated, unskilled farmers or soldiers. Many of the captives were educated and skilled individuals. They could serve as accountants, stonemasons, carpenters, and maybe even physicians. It would not be uncommon for a slave to be working alongside someone that was being paid in labour. Now, while the slaves were bound to their masters, they had a relative amount of freedom within their daily lives. It would be common for the slaves to follow the, the religion of the house or the religion of the master. But there are also slaves that would have gone to the church on their own volition and had a, their beliefs independent of that of their master. As a result of this, some of the Christian slaves were bringing home some radical ideas. And instead of finding contentment in the hope that God would reward their faith, they began to treat their masters with a bit of disrespect. Their physical master wasn't their spiritual master, so why should they be respected? The masters could not help but think this rebellion was due to this new religion and the one called Christ. The behaviour of the slaves was posing a definite threat to the church's reputation. Uh, so we go back to these first two verses. Those who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters of full respect. Uh, but God's name and the teaching should not be slandered. And goes on. Uh, instead they should share them even better because their masters are uh, dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. This is where Paul is issuing his corrective instructions to Timothy. He's saying, even though you have a higher master, the slaves still must honour their obligations to their human masters. This model, almost, uh, this model of obedience is also in service to the Lord. This was just as important if the master was also a believer. Just because the slave and the master were brothers and sisters in Christ, they shouldn't have expected preferential treatment they could slack off. Uh, they should work even harder to bring, bring respect to their house and their master. There is, or there was, a danger that that disrespectful attitude from the followers of the church towards our social institutions, employers if you like, will cause a misunderstanding of the church's evangelistic mission, both in 69 AD and also in 2019. Now, it's, it's been a while since I've worked in the city, but I remember I'd often see, on, especially on a Friday night, this guy by the train station or the casino, he'd be preaching. 
uh, perhaps I should have stopped and listened more, but there's only so much condemnation I can uh, really sort of take in a short period of time. He was telling every passerby, if you do not repent, you will go to hell. And it went on. And I thought, I, I didn't hear anything about the grace of God or the love that he has for us. He, didn't teach, he wasn't teaching about the miracles that Jesus performed. And the problem with this form of evangelism is that we all become tarred with that same brush. So we all, all get viewed as that radical pre evangelistic preacher. I know plenty of people in my work have a hard trouble reconciling the fact that um, I do things like this on a Sunday. Now, without wanting to devote a whole Sunday to slavery, it may be useful to draw a parallel between slavery and modern times. So if we consider the military service, when you go in as a recruit or a private, or any rank for that matter, there's always someone above you, always someone that outranks you. Now, you do have a degree of decision-making that you can employ on a battlefield or in a training exercise, but you still need to submit or obey that chain of command. Now, technically, the military doesn't own you, but you have limited authority over where you're going, where you're going to live, and, of course, how you can act inside and outside the military. And even if the time your service is over, there, there are things that you can't recall. And for most of us, we haven't served, but there would be similarity, similarities between our individual employers. There's a certain expectation of how you should, and how you should act as a representative of your organisation. Your attitude towards your colleagues, and again, for most of us that work, we have a chain of command that we still need to obey. Now, it would be fair to say that our cultural normalities that we experience in our outside world, in our jobs, in our military, in our sporting clubs, doesn't necessarily reflect the doctrine that we have in church. Just because I have defined religious beliefs in church, it doesn't mean that I can openly condemn or criticise my sporting club, my work, the military, our, our political organisation. And, and this is what Paul is getting to in these opening verses. And it, as I said before, it's as relevant then as it is now. Uh, these are things that, and he goes on, these are things that you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise, they do not, uh, and does not agree to the sound of instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and know nothing. Now, it's not just in this chapter, it's in this whole book that this is instruction to Timothy and his stewardship of the church. And Paul's pretty blunt here. If any doesn't, anyone doesn't agree, they are conceited and know nothing. But Paul really is again confirming, affirming this concept of the false teachers that were present amongst the ranks at Ephesus that had a mixture of doctrine doctrines and that would combine mythologies and we, we've already covered that in some of the previous chapters. These teachers had an arrogant air about them. They were older than Timothy and they thought themselves as wise. But what they were teaching was not, but their belief and what they were teaching was not the gospel as Paul had instructed it. Now in our backyard I've got two apricot trees. It's the end of winter, neither of them got any leaves on them. They haven't burst their buds yet. Now, one of the trees produces much larger and sweeter fruit and it's just delicious to eat. And the other, it's small fruit, it's not as nice, it's 
probably good for jam, but certainly not for eating. Now, I know which is which because they're in my backyard. But if I was to ask one of you to go and chop down the, the bad tree, you wouldn't know which tree you were chopping down. They both look like apricot trees with no leaves. It wouldn't be until they bear fruit that you knew which was a good tree to keep. And this is what Paul is giving us in verse 4, a list of fruits that are born of the false teachers' behaviours and beliefs. They are definitely not the fruits of the Spirit that have been given from God. And Paul does this so that they, these false teachers may be identified by the rotten fruits of their behaviours. They have an unhealthy interest in contra- controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk and evil suspicions. In Galatians 5, uh, 19 to 21, Paul lists the acts of the flesh and there's stark similarities here. Envy, it's a, it's a painful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by somebody else um, that you possess to, to own that advantage. Strife is bitter, sometimes violent conflict or dissension. Malicious talk is talking about others with the intent of causing them harm. And that constant friction, um, constant friction will wear down anything. If you think of the Grand Canyon, it's a massive canyon that once started as a river, but constant friction over time will wear, wear anything down. And none of these are attributes that we seek in a leader. Now, while they weren't strictly fee for service, these false teachers found that if they were preaching the words that people wanted to hear, it could be quite lucrative to them. This rejection of the knowledge of God is seen to corrupt the mind and rob rob them of the truth. Now, if I jump ahead to Paul's next letter in 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from truth and turn aside to myths. Now, I've had this at work. A guy would come up to me and ask for some assistance on something he had a problem with. I would give him the answer. He wouldn't like it, so he'd go ask somebody else. They'd give him a similar answer. He wouldn't like it and goes ask somebody else. And he kept doing this until basically he got the answer that he wanted to hear. Uh, and that's what Paul is warning about, these false teachers, that they're teaching what they, they, people want to hear. But uh, with godliness... Is content, sorry, but with godliness, but godliness with contentment is great gain. And I believe that where Paul talks about godliness, he's talking about a genuine Christ, Christian life, a faithful relationship with God, a new way of life, and that new way of life being where you've t- fully turned to God, and the life of sin is behind you. Contentment in that in the Stoic philosoph- philosophical sense is an attitude of self-sufficiency and independence from stuff, independence from possessions, and that comes from within. And we're all aware of that prize, that the great gain, that is the eternal life with our God. And Paul goes on, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we should be content with that. These are two great verses and I, we should really use these to start our day because without food and clothing, it is only going to get better after that. A friend of mine put me onto the book of Job a, a long time ago. 
he used to be a bit of a wild man and after he came come to Christ when he was struggling, he, he said, I, I always get out the book of Job. It's the one I've read the most. Um, now, jo- Job may have been one of the richest men in the Bible at the, to- at, at the time. Even if you look at his lifestyle count by today's standard, he was incredibly wealthy. And after Satan destroys it all and takes it all from him, he says, naked I come from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the Lord name of the Lord be praised. So even after he's lost everything, Job realises that it doesn't matter. It's just stuff. He still wants to praise the Lord. He knows that he's going to die with nothing. It is just stuff that he's lost along the way. We should be content that the Lord will provide, just as he did with the Israelites for 40 years in the desert, or when he sent out the 72 I'm sending you out like lambs among the wolves. Do not take a purse or sandals. Um, the rest of that story is in Mark 10. But God provides them with exactly what they need, for they are doing God's work. And we get to the last two verses, which are, I guess probably pretty well known. That those who want to get rich fall into a temptation and trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Some people eager for money have wandered from the path and pierced themselves with many griefs. It might have been last week or the week before, but we talked about weeds and how they can come up everywhere. We can spray them with weed killer, but they will come back. Um, I don't know if any of you have tried removing mint or kaikuya from a garden bed, but once that's taken hold, it's nearly impossible to remove. That the root is the, the source of the problem there with those plants. Until you remove the root, that plant will just keep coming back and back. And I, I guess mint and kaikuyu would have to be the plant world equivalent of the love of, all, uh, the love of money. Uh, unless you remove all parts of that, you will still have mint and kaikuyu. And we're familiar with the story from um, Mark 10, where Jesus teaches us that it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of the needle than it is for a rich man to enter into heaven. And later in that same passage, he points to our only hope and teaches us that with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So the answer lies in seeking God for the determination and the strength to do what is impossible for us, to take control of our lust and our, for money and possessions, to somehow bring about the change that God will allow others to... That will allow God and, and others to occupy the places of priority in our life. And sort of to, to wrap all of this up, I want to talk about contentment. Um, I may be on a little bit of a tangent here from the message that was intended to be delivered, but this is where I've been led this week. Um, so I wonder how many people would be willing to hold their hand up and say, I'm content. Now, It was rhetorical, I didn't really expect to see any hands. But are you really content? Do you have any problems with your car? Do you want a shiny new one? Or do you like catching public transport? Do you feel that you need to lose a few kilos? Would you like to work less and get paid more? Would you like to have a job? Would you like to retire but you can't afford it? Would you like the grandchildren or the children to come and visit more? Who knows someone or themselves is suffering from cancer? 
Who would like that burden removed? I'm sure there is something that I could go on and find that would make you more content. Who would like a better relationship with Jesus? You see, I honestly don't think we can say that we're content. If we were, we wouldn't want for anything more. But we live in a society where there is a constant bombardment of new, upgrade, single-use, disposal, better, faster, more. The concept of enough is almost completely foreign to us. Now, I've been suffering a bit of heel pain and tension in my lower leg for a considerable amount of time, especially in the morning. Now, it's not every single day, but it's most. Now, it's not severe, but it gives me a pretty limited range of motion. Now, I'm terrified that if I do anything really strenuous, I'm going to tear my Achilles. And if you know anybody that has torn their Achilles, that's not a great outcome. Now, I've done a lot of self-massaging and stretching on my calf muscles to relieve the tension, but it really hasn't worked. I haven't given up on it, but I've sort of kind of learned to live with it. And, look, let's not pretend it's the only thing from stopping me from going to the gym, but I really was terrified that if I started actively exercising that um, I would would snap my Achilles. So, like a lot of Australian men, I decided to eventually fix itself up and haven't done anything about it. (laughs) So, last week I met the chiropractor for an adjustment. Now, while he's a chiropractor, he's also, he used to be a trained massagist and he does some dry needling. Now, I've mentioned this to him, not in the hope that he's going to fix it, because he's a chiropractor, but I thought this was a symptom of something else that I wanted treated. Now, he addresses it straight away. He's telling me, it's nothing to do with my Achilles. It's a small muscle on the side of my shin that's causing the pain. So he gets his thumb and he starts digging into the muscle. Now, when I'm in pain, I sort of close my eyes and visualise a happy place. And he's asking me, "Mm, is that sore? And I'm still there. And he moves his thumb and digs in. And I'm tapping out on the table... I, I, I'm straight back there in the moment, and yeah. So, yeah, I can feel that. <laughs> but, but like that, he pinpointed the problem. Um, he pinpointed the source of my problem. Now, he gave me some self-massage to do that I did that night, but the next morning I woke up and I was without any pain. In fact, it's been so good, I went for a 10K run this morning. <laughs> nah, just joking, it was 20 Thank you for those that laughed. It appears I've got a lot more with us than I thought we would have at this point. But in all seriousness, I had a legitimate problem. I wasn't going to burden my chiropractor with it because I didn't think he could fix it. He treats backs and he treats necks. I wasn't going to ask because I didn't think he could help, but he did. And all the problems relating to my feet are now small and insignificant and no longer a burden to me, and I'm no longer just talking about my chiropractor and my foot. Am I? We all have burdens and discontents, so what's weighing you down? Now, I guess as my tangent goes off on its own tangent, I'm going to ask uh, Val May to come up and provide me with a little background music while I finish this up. A couple of weeks ago, we had the breakthrough sessions with uh, Dan Horbottle from um, his church. I can't remember the name of it, sorry. And he, he asked us to imagine ourselves... Where, with Jesus. Um, and I've got an enormous amount from that. Now, I want to share something similar with you now. I think this may have come from Naomi, Naomi or Josh, I'm not sure. I, I don't know who to credit. 
it was different when they did it. Um, I want you can follow my story, or you can imagine your own. So, I'm imagining that I'm walking along the beach with Jesus. It's a perfect day. It's neither hot nor cold. Blue skies with the occasional purely white cloud, and with a piece of wind gently blowing. We're walking along the water's edge, and Jesus turns to me and says, "Dylan, what's wrong? Your footsteps are heavy. What's troubling you, son?" I reply, "Well, I have all these problems that no one else seems to have. I feel like they're weighing me down through every step and every day." I look around and I don't see others going through all the stuff that I'm going through. Jesus pauses and he hands me a box. He says, "Dylan, one by one, I want you to put all of your problems in that box." So I start unloading my problems that I have in the box: the broken relationship with my brother, my uncle that had recently passed that I barely knew, the grandmother that I hardly see. The family members are suffering from cancer. My weight problems. The kid I was cruel to in high school. It all goes in the box, one by one. It took a long time, and it's late in the day, but I've finally unloaded all of my problems into the box. Jesus asked me to pick up the box and follow him. I pick up the box, and I can barely carry it, and I follow him through a door into another room. Don't worry, I know we're at the beach, but I'm with Jesus. If he wants a box in the doorway, there's a box in the doorway. In the middle of the room is a massive pile of boxes. Jesus asked me to go and put my box on the pile. The minute I let go of the box, I feel an enormous sense of relief. I feel lighter. There's a spring in my step. Jesus smiles at me and asks, "Now, doesn't that feel better?" I, I'm dancing around the room. Full of joy, and I yell back, "Of course it does! Thank you, Jesus!" And Jesus says, "We're not done yet." He said, "Your problems were worse than everyone else. Go pick out a box and join me." I poke around the boxes. They're all different. Some are really small. There's one that's like a matchbox, but it's really, really heavy. There's another big one, like a fridge box, but it's quite light. And I'm really not comfortable with with being either of those. So I eventually settle on a box that I think I can manage. I re-enjoy Jesus with the box. He instructs me to open it and pull out all the problems that contain with it. It seems quite familiar: family problems, family with cancer, broken relationships, weight issues. I turn the box around and it's got my name on it. And Jesus says to me, "I know the box is heavy, but there are lessons that you still need to learn from it. But I can help you." Follow me, and when you are ready, let me carry the box for you. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, when I wrote the end of that yesterday, I had my usual amount of doubt. I thought this doesn't belong in the sermon. Was about to delete it, and I started reading the next song that we're about to sing.、Uh, I was reading the lyrics, and for me, the, the song is about contentment. It's about giving it all over to Jesus. He is my reward and all of my devotion. There is nothing in this world that could ever satisfy. Through every trial, my soul will sing. There's no turning back. I've been set free. Christ is enough for me. Everything I need is in you. I've decided to follow. Uh, to fight for Jesus. No turning back.